When I started in the carnival circuit, the only people that come watch me wrestle were pedophiles and elephants. That's right, ladies and gents. There's a new craze sweep at the nation. Shoot interviews from the boys of professional grappling. In my day, you could get heat off a lockup. And then all these spot monkeys came in and started using headlocks and stuff and killed the business. And they're giving you a never-before-seen look behind the curtain. The only people I talk to are hookers. Hookers in the ring and in the street. Oh my, you may want to put little Betty and little Johnny to bed for this one. You couldn't draw money with a popsicle covered in ants at a candy store. The Professional Wrestling Shoot Interview, filmed right here in America. Yes, America. America, America, America. Best rib I ever pulled? I shot a man once. It was hilarious. The Professional Wrestling Shoot Interview. An interview from a pro wrestler about pro wrestling. Old commercials had to explain everything like 12 times. To be clear, I never wrestled drunk. I did everything else drunk though, but not wrestle. The Professional Wrestling Shoot Interview by Ted Bell Pod. They used to call me Star Destroyer, and then I'm like, you know what? Just call me by my God-given name, Buck McDermott. Welcome to Ten Bell Pod. I'm Nick Alexander, joined as always by Tyler Wood. Hello, Nick. Hi. We are joined by the toast of the roasts from a campfire or something, the man scout Jake Manning. You know what? I'm going to let it slide just because you gave (laughs) Tyler a little less intro than you normally do. So I I do appreciate that, Nicholas. I will let it slide, but um, yes, I am here. I'm here to discuss whatever we are going to be talking about today and shit on Tyler in the process because this is a history podcast that we'll be doing today. (laughs) Uh, We will not be talking about uh, Ruthless Aggression era or anything that happened (laughs) in TNA in 2007. So I am excited for this, this conversation today. And for those of you who are playing 10 Bell Pod Fantasy, the strong money is going to me yelling at Tyler about George Hackenschmidt today. Probably that's where we're going to land. That's probably where it'll all start. I'll take that bet. <laughs> today, we are talking about a man that seems to mostly exist in just name to modern wrestling fans. But he is someone who, without a hint of exaggeration, is one of the most important wrestlers of all time. If we attempt to draw a straight line through wrestling history, there are a few people that are going to pop up for better or worse. You know, names like Rock Austin, DX, NWO, 80s Hogan, Macho, Vince, unfortunately. You got Dusty, Flair, Harley, Tossin, Superstar, Billy Graham, Blassie, Bruno. But you may not know a single one of their names without the Toast of the Coast, the Human Orchid, the great Gorgeous George. So I won't say that someone wouldn't have came along eventually and added some flair or character to wrestling, but for George to do it when he did and how he did, it changed the industry forever. And not only a guy that influenced professional wrestling, but I mean, for lack of a better word, sports entertainment, the influence that Gorgeous George had on Muhammad Ali and everything that he did that 
captivated a nation and got people interested in boxing and this idea of athletes shit-talking each other to get attention, build your brand. It, it all starts with this man, Gorgeous George. Very well might not have Conor McGregor if it were not for this flamboyant, <laughs> beautiful man in the 50s. Yeah, you, you talk a lot about how it all connects with wrestling. It connects with all sports. You, you don't have Odell Beckhams. You don't have... David Beckham's, uh, and then a Beckham that plays in the NBA. I'm sure there's one. There's, there's always a Beckham in every professional sports. Another blonde guy, shit talker, Larry Bird, goat shit talker. Yeah, I mean, who knows? I There, there might be a deep connection there. I, I don't know. <laughs> I can hear Larry Bird being like, I really like that gorgeous George. It made me want to shit talk. <laughs> made me want to shit talk everyone of the Lakers. <laughs> Let me give a shout out to some sources as none of us have met Gorgeous George. He wasn't on 15 WrestleManias and Jake didn't wrestle him. Wait, Jake, did you wrestle Gorgeous George? I've wrestled Gorgeous George the third, but I haven't <laughs> wrestled Gorgeous George. So the main source here is John Capaya's Gorgeous George, the outrageous bad boy wrestler who created American pop culture. Highly recommend it. Fun read. I'm also pulling some from David Shoemaker's The Squared Circle and also countless online articles that I read, which I will give no credit to. Get a real job, you goddamn hippies. Yeah, let's shit on writers. How about, how about we do that, Nicholas? <laughs> and then this, this climate, uh, as picket signs probably sit in your apartment as we speak, let's shit on some writers, Nick. Good call. Continue on with this podcast. No one for the sportsters in the WGA, it's okay. To get into the story of George and to correctly frame his importance, we have to first do a little bit of a history lesson on what pro wrestling was leading up to his time. For that, we must take a trip way, way back to glam perms, neon leg warmers, the 1880s. At its very core, pro wrestling starts with catch wrestling, pulling influences and fighting styles from England, India, Greece, Italy, Ireland, just to name a few. Think of a mix of judo, high school wrestling, jiu-jitsu, just a bunch of pilgrims and tap-out shirts. There were no punches and kicks. You didn't leave the mat. It was just pure grappling. And everybody always brings up that Abe Lincoln was a wrestler as well, too. So whatever wrestling exhibitions that they were, just, you know, Honest Abe partook in them as well. So I know we have just gone back to the very start of wrestling. And Jake, since you are the historian, at what point between the 1880s and today, can you, I don't even know if it's like a specific point or like a, a general era thing, punches in pro wrestling, in general, they're allowed now. and. I'm not even sure in kayfabe what is, like, are they open-handed punches? Are they all supposed to be forearms? Can you kind of break down, like, the rules of that today and where that switched? A bunch of people started cheering for it, and they started doing it more. Um, <laughs> a territory days, I just feel like every old time is like, you know, you don't have to punch a guy a million times. When my day, we used to punch him once, and it used to matter. And then you look back at that era of time that he's talking about, and guys, oh, they punched more than they wrestled <laughs> so uh i feel like territory days texas was notorious for guys just throwing bombs at each other all the time a lot of the texas territories it seemed like there was a lot of fighting going on there's a lot of like punches being thrown in in mid-south as well too and i think a lot of places like that it was a lot about of uh, the fight 
From, say, the 1880s to the early 1900s, you had a strong mix of legit and predetermined matches. As far as two guys agreeing on an outcome of a match for money, whether it was paid directly or to fix a bet, you're diving into human history since things have had value and organized fights were a thing. You could argue that wrestling is centuries old if you want to tie it to like Olympic wrestling. But as far as like what Buff Bagwell did, American males. we'll start around the 1880s. Wrestling found its first real home at the carnival. There were a couple of strategies in the fairground wrestling game centered around separating the marks, as they were called, from their money. None of these are mutually exclusive. I'd imagine people used a blend. But first, you had the crowd plants. Wrestler A would be part of the show. Wrestler B accepts the challenge from the crowd. They face each other with a predetermined outcome, all designed to gather a crowd, sell some tickets if it was set up that way, sell some popcorn, peanuts, whatever. And they're laying it in and working snug, brother, but they're not in there trying to like tear ligaments and break bones. And don't you dare bet on fan duels on the outcome, because then you'll be <laughs> definitely, you're, you're banned for an entire year. Also, too, if I remember it correctly, and it's, it's been told to me many times, if, if, if I get this wrong, please don't chastise me, Al Snow, or just yell at me about my tent match like you did a few months ago. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, the, the term mark is a carnival term in the sense that when somebody walks into the carnival and pays the five bucks to come in, the ticket taker is supposed to glance inside their wallet. They looked inside the wallet and saw a billful full of cash, they'd be like, hold on, you need a stamp to get in. But they didn't give everybody a stamp. They only gave a stamp to the people that had tons of money in their wallet. So that way, when they would walk down the boardwalk with ring tosses, um, the shooting galleries, and all the games that are rigged, it let all those vendors know, like, oh, this guy has money. I need to go after him hard because he's got uh, tons of money. He's walking in here and, you know, he wants to feel important. Like, hey, don't you want to get this Cupid doll for your girl? Come on, buddy. It's only five bucks. And, and the guy's like, I have a wallet full of money. Sure, five bucks. So it's like a cue to everybody. And they would call that guy the mark, the guy who you can work the money out of. That's crazy. I, I legit didn't know that. Yeah, me neither. You said Al Snow yelled at you about this? <laughs> uh, he, he, he might yell at me about it. I don't, I'm, I remember him telling me about it, but I've also heard it from other people. And I, I'm about a hundred percent sure that that's what that is. I've, I've heard that over the years that that's what the term Mark comes from. I love the ties into carnival culture as a whole from an outside perspective. I love that that's a part of the story of professional wrestling and how fucking crazy everybody that was involved with carnivals and pro wrestling and how much that's still involved in wrestling basically that everybody's still a crazy pariah of society deep down if you're in the pro wrestling business and just the the stories of carnivals and the shoot fights and screwing people out of money i love it and i'm glad i was not around for it <laughs> fun fact my supervisor at AEW, one of my bosses uh at AEW, christina myers her background before she got involved with professional wrestling, before she got involved with Sinclair Broadcasting in the accounting department, her background was in carnivals. So when I told Zane Riley that, like, hey, you know, Chrissy's actually, her background is actually in carnivals, Zane replied the only way you could reply when you hear something like that. He goes, 
oh, she's far more qualified than all of us then. She can probably, <laughs> teach, probably teach us a thing or two. And she has. There's certain times on the merch truck where we're doing something. She goes, no, no, don't do it like this. Do it like this. I go, oh, wow, that's amazing. She goes, carnival. I'm like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but how do you fix the ring toss game? How do you fix the ring? Th- I didn't get any. I didn't get any information like that. She she worked in the concessions, so once again, far more qualified to do the job that she's doing than anybody else in the department. The second shtick used to separate the marks and their money was enticing the local yokels to try their hand at beating one of the carnival wrestlers. Showrunners would charge you a nickel or a quarter to try your hand against the pro in hopes of winning a dollar a minute, a $5 bounty, or even some uh, good old-fashioned glory. And most of the house wrestlers were strongmen who were skilled in various holds, and when they weren't bending poles or lifting those weird weights with the balls on the end of them, they were the wrestlers. Each town had their local tough guy, their farm hoss, their roughneck, or even someone who was like a really good amateur wrestler who would, you know, try to fight them. But as far as someone who is actually well-versed in combat fighting versus someone who thinks they are, go check out CM Punk's MMA fights. (laughs) Say it again. While it wasn't impossible for the pros to get beat, they had a series of tricks in case someone was actually a challenge, ranging from a legit sleeper hold to a hillish knuckle in the eye during a headlock. A poke to the eyes or dragging someone's face across a rope is kind of like lame hill stuff today, but it's not lame when it's real. (laughs) While the regulars could, in most cases, just dominate the paying mark, where the skill comes in against the locals was to beat them, but not to squash them so badly you scared them away and you scared their friends away. So they were working the mark and their mark friends out of more nickels and quarters, Because the pro barely beat Larry, and I kicked Larry's ass in 10th grade. Get my wallet. (laughs) During these matches, the local hero from the crowd was usually the fan favorite, getting cheered from friends, his family, leaving the carny as the natural hill. Thus, we have professional wrestling. But again, not all of pro wrestling was fake or scripted. Obviously, Olympic wrestling and amateur wrestling, high school wrestling, that's always been a thing. But sometimes you get these legit badass pro workers who wanted to face each other for pride or money or something that happened at a media scrum. A lot of these matches were straight up real wrestling matches, UFC without strikes, and they were very, very, very slow. There is a commonly referenced match between Joe Stetcher and Ed the Strangler Lewis that went over six hours for a two out of three falls match which the wrestling nerds of the day, they love the nuances of grappling and exchanges, but to the common man, it was boring as fuck. One of the early big card matches was in 1908 when two legit hookers and big-time wrestling stars, Frank Gotch and George Hackenschmidt, had a two-hour war with Gotch getting the win. I don't know if they had merch back then, but a Gotcha shirt would be awesome. Gotch was a legit badass wrestler, and Hackenschmidt would become what was more or less the first foreign hill. He was also the inventor of the hack squat and the first ever record holder of the bench press. A super interesting guy and someone I want to cover one day. Can you hack it with Hackenschmidt? That's his merch. You got <laughs> Gotch, and can you hack it with Hackenschmidt? The Gotch-Hackenschmidt rematch September 4th, 1911 would draw 30,000 people and I have no clue how that many people watched without monitors. Person 700 through 30,000 must have just been like, what? (laughs) 
Either way, this match kind of hurt the business for a while because Hack came in injured. So Gotch, who needed no advantages, beat him really easily and really fast. And you know how wrestling fans are. Bitch, 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 bitch. This match also had some of the first ever backstage dirt sheet bullshit. There were rumors that Gotch paid off George's sparring partner to hurt him, which is why he came into the match hurt. That was a big controversy around the time. So with all the stuff in professional wrestling, there's the story told inside the ring and through promos. There's the, by extension, the story that's told through the pomp and circumstance of the the lights and the camera and the show aspect of it. In all of that, I think something that shouldn't be lost, and I, I figured this out talking to other wrestling fans, sometimes what people are watching wrestling for, why they still glom onto it the way that they do is because some people myself included to an extent we love the backstage bullshit (laughs) so to see that it's been tied in with wrestling since basically the inception of it (laughs) day one yeah that that's that's part of the fun (laughs) frank gotch retired at the top of his game in 1913 but he was considering a comeback in 1917 that would never happen Frank Gotch is quite possibly where you can trace this evil curse of pro wrestlers having early deaths. I mean, it's mostly chugging pills and taking steroids in the 80s that were made in someone's bathtub, but the the, the hex idea is, is, is fun. Frank died at age 40 of uremia poisoning, and while dying at 40 in 1917 isn't quite the tragedy of dying in 40 in like the 90s, he was possibly the first out of hundreds of wrestlers who would die before 50. It wasn't long after losing to Gotch for the second time that Hack's knee started hurting him so bad that he was forced out of wrestling. So with Hack and Schmidt stepping away and Gotch passed away, the two biggest draws in wrestling were gone. You also had things like World War I was coming up, the Spanish flu was killing everyone, and you had other shit to do like watch Babe Ruth play baseball or whatever. Um, This led to a steep decline in the business, so it was right back to carnivals and small regional stuff, with the only powerhouse in American pro wrestling being New York working for Jack Curley. Dude, it's crazy that back in the day, you got your knee tweaked a little bit, you're done. That's it. Yeah. There's no, <laughs> there's no surgery. surgery. There's no <laughs> drugs. It's like, if you can't like grit and bear it, fuck. If it's fucked up enough, we're just going to chop it off. We're not even going to, yeah. there's nothing that can be done. Jack Curley, you say, Nicholas, he is one of the top promoters, actually the top promoter of the time. And I read through his whole Wikipedia. And I'm blanking right now. <laughs> He also was a man that was in black and white. Uh, Brought in the first (laughs) Zabiscos into the business. A little fun fact for you. Uh, Stanislaus and Wolodic. There's no no vowels in between the W and the L. Uh, That's how (laughs) fucking tough they were back then. They didn't have time for vowels. Because if you (laughs) took the time to pronounce a vowel, that was time you could have been using to kick somebody's ass. Amen. This brings us to uh, someone we kind of just mentioned real quick, Ed the Strangler Lewis. I actually was at the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, and I could have sworn that I saw a telegram sent by Frank Gotch. I couldn't find it in my photos, and I was just like, oh, it's my photos are backed up on my computer, so I was trying to find that and to uh, no avail. So sorry if I was tuned out. I was actually trying to do something for the pod. What did the telegraph say? Did it work, work me light? What was it? No, it was just... 
And it was basically like, I want my guarantee, and I want it at this moment in time, and if not, I will not be in attendance for this particular match. It was very much like, hey man, give me my fucking money and I'll show up and I'll do the fucking match for you. But if you don't, do not advertise me, do not bring up my name, and don't ever think to contact me ever again. So... Even back then, there were <laughs> there were there was still drama of sorts. But I, I couldn't remember if it was Frank Gotch or Luthez or or Ed the Strangler Lewis. But it was somebody there. They have a telegraph in the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame that says, "Don't fuck with me, brother. Um, <laughs> give me my cheese." So it's funny that that is hanging in the Pro Wrestling Museum. Like, see, we've always been assholes. <laughs> If I don't get double my salary of $4, I'm not going to go out there and fuck <laughs> up those yokels, you hear me? Ed the Strangler Lewis is a very interesting person as far as the merging of shoot wrestling and work wrestling because a lot of promoters were scared to book Ed because he could win any match he wanted to. Like, imagine if Kurt Angle or Brock Lesnar went into business for themselves. Who's going to stop them? That was Ed Strangler Lewis, but it was all technique. He wasn't like a giant beast like Brock or anything. That's how Bob Backlund got the belt when he did. A lot of things were going on, the territories. Uh, a lot of guys were moving around, and Vince felt very insecure. Vince, Vince Sr. felt very insecure of his territory, and somebody could come in and take his belt. And so he put it on Bob Backlund because he's like, good luck taking it off that man. He's a fucking machine. There's nobody tough enough to take it off him, and that's pretty much why he did it. It wasn't that he was the biggest draw or anything of the sort. It was just like, you know, I, he felt very, like the walls closing in on him a little bit, and guys weren't re respecting agreement. So as like, you know what? I'm not going to have a man fuck me over and take my title away. And that kind of happened to his territory in the past and what happened with the NWA and that whole fallout. So Vince Cena remembered that very well, and... You know, when he had someone like Bob Backlund, it was a handshake agreement and would defend Vince Sr.'s honor. Like, that's why he put the belt on him. And it was basically for that reason is that Ed could not get any work in New York. Everyone was just scared of him. So he moved back to the Midwest where he met Joseph Tootsmont and Bill Sandow, and they eventually formed the Gold Dust Trio. Tootsmont was creative, Sandow handled like the money, the business, and Ed the Strangler Lewis was the badass ace in the whole wrestler. Toots wasn't bad either. There is a very good chance that pro wrestling either dies or remains the super niche thing that like tours with the Ren Fair or something if it was not for the Gold Dust Trio. Most of the credit for the Goat Dust Trio's success, it goes to Toots. So what we've covered so far has more or less been scripted amateur wrestling. But as far as what you turn your TV on today and see, the person who invented that is Tootsmont. If there were like a physical pro wrestling currency, Toots would be on the $100 bill. Toots saw that people were bored of the 93-minute arm bars, and he decided to implement some changes. Despite the screams of old-timers saying he's exposing the business, he wanted to combine everything. Grappling, submission, brawling, morphing the sport into what it is today. And if I'm not mistaken, Toots also, I don't remember it exactly, but I think he's the one that introduced Stu to his wife, Helen. So oh, really, really, in essence, like if there's no Toots mod, there's no hard family. And then you could debate where, where's wrestling after that. And the Calgary Stampede territory, does that exist? And all of that. So yeah, the the roots of Toots and the roots of Toots runs deep <laughs> in the wrestling world. 
Also, Vince Senior's uh, like second guy for Capital. Um, also, but, uh, a man built born in the Hawkeye State. So oh, yeah, that's, yeah. it's always it's always a joke I make when I'm like going to Russing Revolver. I'm always like Tootsman, Dan Gable, and the Man Scout Jake Manning, top three Iowa wrestlers <laughs> of all time. Toots was also the first to form the concept of an actual wrestling promotion. Like a group of guys that toured together from town to town. You like had a staff. You had trust there. You had a routine. Uh, no more worrying if the local dude is going to go into business for himself or is someone going to change their rate last second. They had a company of guys who worked together. And if a new guy went off script, you had Toots or Ed to put them right back in line. Toots not only fully accepted the predetermined match style, it was his entire business strategy. He wanted to build matches to a dramatic conclusion with villains and fan favorites, keep your most marketable guy, in this case Ed, at the top of the card and winning. But Ed couldn't just kill everyone. He needed legit challengers, thus booking to make a guy look legit. Long-term storylines and feuds came into existence. And within a couple of years, the Goldust Trio owned pro wrestling, employing just about every top guy in the country. As the trio continued to crush, they more or less started like franchising out. You know, they had troops scattered about. On top of that, promoters in places like Chicago, St. Louis, they were buying into that business model and started doing their own thing. Before you knew it, we had territories. Within each territory would be good guys, bad guys, stars, and all these little regional companies started taking their own slice of the wrestling business. And that sets the stage for Gorgeous George. This episode is brought to you by Heroin for Babies. From the makers of Teaching the Wifey a Lesson and Smoking 32 Cigarettes a Day comes Heroin for Babies. Bye bye. That'll shut the little bugger up. George Raymond Wagner was born March 24th, 1915 in Butte, Nebraska, the first born to Howard and Bessie Wagner. George is of German descent, so it could be actually pronounced Wagner, but it is for sure morphed into Wagner by now. So if you don't like it, you can get out. Well, listen, that's a Fierbach. It's supposed to be Fauerbach is actually my real name. So, um, yeah, just trying to pass, man. Just trying to pass. <laughs> just call me Alex Smith or Ronnie Stevens. Don't don't use my real name. That's crazy. I thought your real name was Jake. Yeah, I know. Right. Fierbach Manning. We- really weird. <laughs> In George's first few years, the family bounced between Nebraska, Iowa, and Arizona, which had only been a state for a couple of years by the time no. uh, baby George moved there. Are you serious? Get out. Yeah, that, that, that's how old we're getting today. God damn. <laughs> See, that's the thing. That's what's so hard. God bless Nick for doing this research. It's not like we can watch a bunch of shoot interviews and people are going to talk about, talk about this man who we're talking about. No. There were states non-existent at this time. <laughs> and with wrestlers dropping dead at like 50 or younger, do you think anybody was around to talk to this man? <laughs> Absolutely not. So God bless Nick for doing the research on this one. The Wagners would eventually settle down in Harrisburg and or Houston, Texas by 1925. And that's where George mostly grew up in a house no bigger than 600 square feet. Even before the Great Depression hit in 1929, George's upbringing wasn't glamorous. His family had little money, and they did what they could to get by with George, his mom, his siblings, on his dad's painter salary. And he, like, painted houses. He wasn't doing, like, cubism or whatever. 
No, he had to paint houses because they were just building them because he's yeah. in a place that's just now a fucking state. George's mom had chronic rheumatoid arthritis that kept her in pain and sometimes completely bedridden. My neighbor actually has this. And even with like modern treatments, it's brutal. George spent a lot of time taking care of his mom, but when he wasn't doing that, he didn't have much else to do as far as being poor and living in the goddamn 20s. So George and the neighborhood kids formed a little patch of dirt and used it as a wrestling ring. George's crew called themselves the Harrisburg Rats. They rumbled people with artistry and song and dance, but it's this is crazy. A lot of them became pro wrestlers. Jacob Brown, Jesse James, Dizzy Davis, Chesty Hayes, One of George's friend's dads owned a fruit stand, so around 10 to 12 years old, the boys would start wrestling on a pile of sawdust from time to time, and a passerby would throw them a coin, making this the first time George ever got paid to wrestle. You know, we're still a few years away from the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938, so child labor is still good. As a teen, George started training at the local YMCA, and this combined with his Oliver Twist feral street kid wrestling made George a more than capable amateur wrestler. I don't know if he was like strangler level, but he could hook you and tap you without any issues. We had to. This wasn't like, you know what, kid, you got a good look. We're going to work around you to do whatever we can because you have a good look. It's like, no, you, you, you have to know how to do the job for us to hire you. You can't just not be able to do this. If you're going to wrestle, you have to be able to be a wrestler. That's just how it is. Jake, what would you say the percentage of indie wrestlers nowadays that could win a fight against an average person? If you ask Jim Cornette, none. <laughs> what, are you going to do a fucking backflip? <laughs> See, here, here's the thing. There are guys that are tougher than what you think that would surprise you in a fight like that. And then there's like big muscle guys who are oh, that guy would definitely kick him. And like, oh, no, he would crumble in a second. Mm. Like... The first person that kind of comes to me deceptively scary and could fuck somebody up is Blade from Butcher and the Blade. Dude, that dude is okay. fucking built. God damn. He, and I'm not talking Butch. I'm not talking Andy Williams. No, I'm talking, no, Blade. I'm talking, he's I'm talking, cut. But also here's another reason why I feel like he can murder somebody is because he's the nicest person you'll ever meet in your entire life. And usually in my, in my experience, the nicest guys are the scariest guys because... They don't want to become what what they know is inside of them. So they're trying really hard to repress. Like, like Kazarni, nicest person you'll ever meet in your entire life. But he, he told me a story one time. He was doing a karate tournament. And it was his last karate tournament ever where he said it almost turned into like a like a Chuck Norris, Jackie Chan movie because <laughs> this it was some karate exhibition or something. It wasn't like a tournament. It was something where like this guy was like doing something and he didn't like Kazarni and Kazarni was like a multiple time over black belt. His dad was a world champion karate fighter, and this coach did not like Kazarni. So he kind of karate kid like sent all his students at him like one at a time. And he fucking Kazarni proceeded to beat the fuck out of all of them like all in a (laughs) row and like physically hurt some of them and injured some of them. He said it was just like fight or flight and he, I just saw red and I, I he's like, I broke some bones. I did some shit I'm not proud of and I decided I never wanted to do karate ever again. But it was like, you meet him, he's the nicest, kindest, politest man and always like, hello, tips his head to the side and is very, is soft as hand. You know, like not like a, like, hey, good brother, like handshake, but like firm in there, but like not too hard. He's gives you a big hug, warm smile but knows how to fucking hurt people 
that's always my case. And I feel, I feel like Blade is the same way. So like as much as they're like, oh, these guys couldn't win in a fight. Trust me, there's some guys back there that will fucking hand you your lunch. And they're probably the nicest guys back there. And then obviously like Gates of Destiny guys, like I feel like they, they can murder some people. <laughs> I have an idea for you. You should pitch this to Tony. You guys should get all these wrestlers from AEW and put them together in, in an actual shoot fight. <laughs> brawl for bracket. all. You want to? Oh, I've been trying to get him to do brawl for all. Like, but I just I'm not in his ear yet. But I'm gonna get there. And as soon as they do, my first idea is gonna be AEW brawl for all. That's my first idea. George's mom died when he was 17 years old, so he dropped out of school and started working odd jobs to help the family out while still wrestling whenever he could. And again, we're talking about like legit grappling, amateur wrestling. So he was doing some wrestling at Elks Clubs. He would go into speakeasies and wrestle during Prohibition. And George would take his first steps to becoming a pro wrestler at carnivals, accepting challenge matches from the carny regulars. And George, being as legit as can be, he caught a few of these guys by surprise and he started uh, buying in on a regular basis. He became friends with some of them. And once they saw how skilled he was, he was smartened up, and he started working rigged matches with them. As George became a regular, he was sworn in to keep the code of kayfabe. And kayfabe has kind of morphed into like this all-encompassing word for, I guess, fiction today. But back in the day, it was more or less used as like, shut up, there's a mark, don't talk about what we do. George was a vehement defender of kayfabe. He was one of those, oh, you think it's fake, and then smashes your head into a wall. He was one of those. And it's so weird because I even feel like we've pushed even further away from kayfabe, even in my time in pro wrestling, to the point that guys are like, oh, no, I have to tell what my storyline is coming up so people know to pay attention. Like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm winning the belt. Or like they'll not only will they tip off that it's, it's rigged or it's predetermined, they'll give you each beat of the story. Just so they like, hey, well, that'll boost viewership so people know what's coming to expect and know what show to watch. There's almost people with that mentality. And then there's also people like, if they don't get their way, like, well, we were going to do this and this and this. And this guy said, pulling it so far back that it's just almost to the point that it's gone from cave Abe to, can you just keep your fucking mouth shut for like two seconds? <laughs> I kind of want to just do this match and people not know what the end's going to be. Like, I'm begging you, don't let people know that you're going to win. Could you do that? I'd appreciate it. It's not even kayfabe because they're like, we're going to kill the business. It's more like, hey, just shut your fucking mouth so we get people to buy a fucking ticket. Like, it's that that far right now. I agree. It's like, Spoilers. it's not kayfabe anymore. It, when I started watching, it was like, kayfabe was already long dead by the time I started watching. But it was always, when the show started, kayfabe was in gear until the show ended. And now it seems like almost everybody in every aspect is like a wink and a nod of like, hey, you know, this isn't real almost the entire time but sometimes you have to and just to make it feel more organic but now it's to the point that they're not doing it to make it feel more real mm -hmm. you you're doing it to show how cool you are like yeah wrestling's dumb right wrestling so dumb and i'll show you how dumb it is like that's what it feels like as opposed to giving it reality and i feel like you can do those things to give it reality but now it's wrestlers themselves are like hey this wrestling stuff is dumb let me tell you why it's dumb because i told you it's dumb that means i'm cool that's where it really offends me i agree 
actually, according to, I believe it's him at Shogal09 on Instagram, uh, Jake killed kayfabe when he uh, wrestled Ted. So uh, just wanted to correct you on that. Oh, but here's the thing, though. Like, there was actual hatred between me and Tent. Tent wasn't out there telling everybody what was going to happen. I sure, I was playing as straight as fucking possible. Okay, like, and I still refer to Ten as a fucking person, okay? The fact that I'm even talking this far out of kayfabe is completely opposite of the way any other time that I've ever had a conversation. Like, oh yeah, yeah, Ten's a real asshole. Like, I'm talking about an inanimate object as a real fucking person that's pissed me off that I have a blood feud with. You don't get more kayfabe than that. (laughs) If anything, me wrestling a Ten is more kayfabe than fucking anything else in the world. Fuck off all the way, sugar 69, 69, 39. <laughs> so it was at the fairgrounds that George got the attention of a local Houston promoter who asked George to wrestle opening matches just like that he was in. January 26, 1934, the almost 19-year-old George got his first break in the business when Morris Siegel booked him for one of his Friday night cards at the City Auditorium a 4,000-seat theater in downtown Houston. There, he lost to Billy Smith. And it's weird, you know, like, just looking at this timeline, like, some of the cities that pop up. Houston, Columbus, Atlanta. Like, all cities, like, yeah, these have always been historically good wrestling towns. Like, yeah. forever. Like, even in the 20s, all the way up until the 80s. 60 years, you know, 80 years, almost 100 years of being good wrestling towns. George would have to hang on to his day jobs as he was used very sparingly by Morris. But it was during these auditorium matches that George learned his most important lesson, how to work the crowd. I know I don't really have to explain this, but George is the most old school of old school guys we've covered. So not every match I throw out is going to be as clean as January 26, 1934. In 35, George got his first recorded professional wrestling win, beating Tiger Mud uh, October 14th. <laughs> Things really got rolling when George met Atlanta wrestler Carl Von Hoffman, who was impressed by George while he was in Texas. He told him to come down to Atlanta, brother. George was off to become a real boy. And then Dusty Rhodes showed up and told everybody they're fired, and Ch- <laughs> Chick Donovan walked up and was like, what about me? My name's on a list of people you're keeping, and Dusty Rhodes goes, <laughs> I already got my nature boy. You can pack your bags and get on out of here. <laughs> is, that, is that are we at that point in the timeline or did I overshoot it? Like <laughs> yeah, 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 about fifty years off. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. All right, just making sure. In Atlanta, George got his first proper experience with the boys as they beat the shit out of the newcomer. Uh, wrestling locker rooms have always been really chill. George worked through the beatings, wrestling on dirty mats that gave half the guys infections, and uh, only earning a couple of dollars a match on the undercard. George also hit the roads, traveling in super dangerous conditions, hoping that the showrunner didn't run away with all the money. Hell, man, you could drink and not wear a seatbelt in cars back then. (laughs) Hell, you could do that almost up into the 70s. Dude, what the fuck? (laughs) Yeah, there was like this early 80s report of them banning drunk driving and all the people are like we're just taking a step towards a communist (laughs) fascist country it's it's always been the same man (laughs) the rhetoric has always been the same like it really it really has it just you know incremental change as president obama said on the mark Marin podcast it's all about incremental change While the Atlanta experience was nice, by September of 36, George had realized that he was going to be stuck on the undercart due to his size. 
at a generous 5.9 and build at 200, which was really 175 tops. He just couldn't climb the card with the promoter who only wanted monster versus monster. Yeah, Kevin Nash was booking, right? <laughs> yeah. So he called up his pal, Jesse James, not that one, who was doing pretty good for himself up in New York. So George Wagner headed to the Big Apple. At the time, New York was heavily populated by immigrants of all origins, but a good bit of Germans were coming over. I don't know why a bunch of Germans would be fleeing Germany around this time. George went to work for Jack Curley, and with the immigrant-heavy New York demographic, Jack was very much in the mindset of be German or Russian or something weird. With George's German name and descent, he was given the very clever name, George Wagner of Germany. I was terrified for you for a second when you were like, New York is full of, because I heard that Monroe accent come out, and I was waiting for something. But then you were like, it was full of Germans, bunch of fucking Jerry's and crowds walking in. I can say, by the way, I can say that because I am German, so I can, I can make fun of the Germans all I fucking want, because I'm allowed. There was a bunch of fucking Jerry's in NYC, and they all wanted somebody they can identify with. That wasn't a dictator. Cool. That's what's going on. I'm a little nervous that he ends up in what? Hollywood. You don't have any thoughts about Hollywood, do you, Nick? What, what about Hollywood? It's just... It's a... <laughs> Hollywood is full of... Actors. <laughs> Russians. Nothing but Russians. George snuck in there just in time. Like, I feel like a year later, and he has a Nazi gimmick like Fritz von Erich. Like, he, he was like the last dude that just got to be a German person. We hadn't really figured out what, that, what Hitler was doing over there. Like, yeah... <laughs> Over there, that's over there problems. That's over there problems. So he said, what? Oh, did he say anything about us? Oh, okay, oh, he's cool, okay. Oh, he did what to France? Oh, okay, all right. What What did the Japanese say? Oh, we are in this shit now. Down in Atlanta, wrestling was dominated by size and weight, but New York and Jersey seemed to be more into like the lightweights that flew around the ring. Northeast has always been a bunch of work rate fucking smarks. Young George was fast-paced, very athletic. He was a handsome young guy. So by mid-37, George was working every night of the week. It was also in the late 30s that George met his future ex-wife, Elizabeth Betty Hansen. She'd not only be on the road with him during like the struggling artist years, but she also pushed George creatively and had a big hand in molding the gorgeous character. She made his first robe, she dyed his hair, and apparently even named him. So the ripple effect of George's influence on pro wrestling can be traced back to one woman, Betty. That he probably cheated on and drank oh, yeah. and <laughs> was miserable too and didn't respect. Because I always have a theory about wrestler wives. You get three of them. You get the one that supports you. When you you know you're first starting off and like is is with you during the hard times, the thin times, when you're getting those twenty dollar payoffs, and then all of a sudden you start to get something going. She's always there. She's at the merch table. She's giving you suggestions on merch. She appears in your vlogs. You know you're always tweeting about how much you miss her. And then all of a sudden you get on TV and get to be a star and everything's great, awesome, cool. She's right there for you. I love her so much. And then all of a sudden you start cheating on her because you think you're a big star. She doesn't want to have nothing to do with it you're drinking a lot more you just want to party and be a star she takes the kids you don't see them anymore she raises them up to be wonderful individuals they hate your guts everybody in your family now fucking hates you so you're like you know what i just want some girl for fun and that's when you get with a girl who appears in a mugshot with you and all of a sudden you get that half sleepy eyed fucking mugshot where you're like 
uh, your eyes are half open, your mouth's so agape. So that gets put all over social media, and you get that girl that, you know, you go to jail with. Go through that. You have a couple of fuck-ups. You might fuck up three or four times. Then that dissolves and you kind of get away from her. People really force you in the rehab because nobody wants anything to do with you. And then all of a sudden you come out of rehab and you find Jesus. And that's where you get the girl that tells you that, you know, abortion's bad. And you need to start going to these meetings. And you need to start talking about Jesus more and tweeting Bible verses and stuff like that. And then you start doing all the church shows and talk about how you live this dirty lifestyle in professional wrestling. But I found the Lord now and then just hate on everybody that used to do before and talk shit about him because you, you found the Lord now and you, you're good now. But everybody else is living a hateful, sinful life and that women's wrestling is bad because it's over-sexualizing of women. So you need to, we need to get rid of women's wrestling. We need to do all kinds of things. And we need to stop doing all that DX crotch shopping stuff and think about the Lord and Jesus and pro wrestling. That makes me money, but in, in, in the way that I need it to be. That's what always happens. Everyone so. follows that exact path. Everybody. <laughs> Everybody. In early 38, George was out on the West Coast working for Herb Owen. Yes, Don Owen's dad in Portland, brother. Jesus, uh, by... are we? This is how old he is? Is like a guy yeah. who is like fucking... <laughs> There's nobody in shoot interviews anymore that's going to talk about Don Owen. Like, that's how far of a generation pass <laughs> we got. Like, everybody that's going to talk about Don Owen has already done a shoot interview. It's done. It's over. And he's seen as an old timer. And we're bringing up his father? Are you fucking serious? <laughs> how, how long has Nebraska been a fucking state at this point? What? <laughs> two years? By the end of 38, George had met Betty, who was an usherette at a movie theater George went to, abroad with a job. Must have been the way her parents raised her. It was in Portland that George got his first massive push, as the locals in Portland were also super on board with George's athleticism, his showmanship, his good looks. And as a face, he worked about 250 days a year, making $2,500 a year, so like 10 bucks a match, when the minimum wage was only 25 cents an hour. I love that. That's about what I make now as a comedian. <laughs> At 38, he won his first pro wrestling title, defeating Jack Lipscomb for the Northwest Middleweight Championship, although he only held it a couple weeks before he dropped it to the evil Irishman, Pat O'Downey. Pat O'Downey probably hit you with a, a shamrock or some sort, or maybe a <laughs> box of Lucky Charms that had a brick in it, <laughs> which is an actual weapon that a guy that was... Oh, Jesus. Uh, who was, I think it was Irish O'Patty or something like that. <laughs> he fucking hit people with a box of Lucky Charms that had a brick in it. February 23rd, 1939, in Eugene, Oregon, George married Betty in the ring. Familiar? Don Owens and his brother Elton were ushers. So that's how old this is. Uh, there was no Triple H sighting, so everything went okay. <laughs> Following the wedding, George got changed and he wrestled in the main event. After winning, the bride and groom ate some coffee and cake in the lobby and then headed out on their honeymoon, which was a wrestling tour with stops in L.A., El Paso, and Houston to see George's family. And that's something you could do back in this era that's, gosh, if you want to romanticize anything, the ability to take vacations with this job. And like many wrestlers talk about how they're like, oh, we got married, and then I called all these promoters in the southeast like the gulf coast area so i work the gulf coast territory for two weeks so we were on the beach every day i was wrestling every night so we had a vacation paid for 
which is something I try to do a lot with Jen, and she wants nothing to do with me. But that's what I always used to do when I would travel. Like, okay, well, I can go to the beach during the day, do my comedy show or my wrestling show at night. But yeah, using professional wrestling to give you the vacation you want, and you just have to wrestle a match or two. It's something that I try to do a lot, but like during this territory area, you could do a lot. That's why that Hawaii territory was so popular. Guys, like, you know what? My wife wants to go to Hawaii. How about I just call up the, the Maya Vias and I'll come in and do two or three weeks and it's two or three weeks in Hawaii and I won't have to pay a dime for it. That is a uh, perfect lead in because as we head towards the 40s, George and Betty struggled a lot financially. But things got better when they got a big long run in Hawaii. All the matches were like on the island, so there wasn't travel costs or hotels. They just kind of chilled on the beach, fished, and ate. But speaking of Hawaii, December 7th, 1941, the bombing of Pearl Harbor happened, and all the able-bodied men had to enlist in the military. But for reasons kind of unknown, George would again and again be denied including a 4F exemption, which stated he was either physically, mentally, or morally not fit to go to war. George was claustrophobic. That was, that was like an idea thrown out. Like, we're not even in the gorgeous era yet, so it's not like a don't ask, don't tell thing. Like, I, he just fucking... He's too much to of a sissy to fight for this country. <laughs> Jake, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Is Pearl Harboring not a term in wrestling? It is, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Oh, yeah. it is. And uh, there was a... There was a famous story that like the ECW guys were over for FMW and <laughs> that you can decide to take out uh, or not, but uh, Sandman. Two minutes later. As soon as you said Sandman, I was like, yep, going to edit this out. <laughs> yep. yep, feel free. I know a lot of wrestling uh, terms and I just learned two more. So while he would get to spend the next several months wrestling instead of killing Nazis, he had his own issue when he shattered his ankle May of 42. While recovering, George had a lot of time to think about life, about wrestling, and like how he was going to make it. That's when Betty suggested a change. George had done like fine as a clean-cut nice guy. He could work circles around his peers, but he wasn't like reaching the levels of a Luthez. So George and Betty decided to turn away from the one-dimensional saves-the-day-good-guy and go bad. And that decision would change George's life and pro wrestling history forever. What, no more cake in the lobby with your wife? <laughs> it's the most wholesome goddamn thing I've ever fucking heard before in my entire <laughs> life. Cake in the lobby? From the finances of heroin for babies comes the horror smash of the year. Don't do it, Johnny. Have you read the statistics? Marijuana is responsible for 100% of murders, especially Jesus's. Oh, don't be silly, Susie. A little wacky grass never hurt anyone. <laughs> See? Wait, no, no. What am I turning into? <laughs> Your eternal soul. The Devil's Lettuce in theaters this fall. So George didn't just slap on a robe and ta-da. It was a whole long process. So the first step would be to change his in-ring tactics. He would become a whiner, a cheat. He'd use moves like an eye gouge and the dreaded close fist punch. George also sent in new promos of him scowling in black trunks and get this shit, his hair was messy. 
they even played into the skipping the war thing, which gave George nuclear heat. Not the same nuclear heat Japan got, but close. Oh yeah, let's take out yep. let's take out my Sandman story, but let's keep that in. Let's fucking keep that in. Yeah, let's keep that shit in. Let's uh, let that ride. Yeah, fucking J- Jake's the problem because he's repeating a line, and I don't feel comfortable saying this. Cause these are another man's words. But oh, Nicholas over here. <laughs> As over as George was as a face, he was like three times more over as a hill. And as freeing and creative as being a hill was, George was shocked by how thorough people hated him. He was like, they're throwing pennies at me and cigarettes. He, Tracy, smothered himself up a riot or two. This is before gorgeous George was like fully formed. And let's think like, it took me a while to kind of figure out what the Man Scout character was. Like I did it kind of in pieces. Like, I feel like if you want a fully formed character, you don't get it right out of the box. Like, it takes times, incarnation, even look at Orange Cassidy. Like, some of the earlier, like, gear options and the things he was doing, like, it kind of evolved into what it is right now. But all great characters do. They don't come out of the box fully formed. Like, you've got to figure out what works, what doesn't, and you need that space to fail. And we don't get a lot of that now, which is like, Here's the character. You got to like it immediately. And then, oh, you don't? Well, back to NXT, you know, or show up on NXT with it. Like, oh, well, guess what? You're going to disappear now for six or eight months and wait for the people to forget about you. And you'll come back to something else. So with George doing some of his mannerisms and starting to get like a lot of direct response from the crowd, exactly what he wants. Jake, do you remember a time when you were forming the Man Scout character where like a specific time where you were trying something new? And you got a reaction, and you're like, oh shit, that's that's dang, that's part of the character now. Well, I mean, when I started using a tent in the ring, like I was like, okay, little did I know that this is going to be the thing I will do all the time. I was just in a hardcore match, and I felt like, what would be a weapon I would have? And I was like, camping tent, makes sense to me. Now it's the thing I have to have. Like when I go to the promoter, I'm like, what do you want for a match? They're like, did you bring a tent? I'm like, yes, I brought a fucking tent. I know why I'm here. Um... <laughs> The book thing was was an element because I would do the book thing for like at the very beginning and then I'd go have a wrestling match. But then I'd see somebody later and I'm like, oh, that match was so good. I go, what was your favorite part? You reading the book. <laughs> I was like, I just, I was like, I just jumped off the top rope three or four times and did this cool move and dived to the outside. But the only thing that you liked was me reading a book. Okay, I will start reading the book. Hey man, you did something I couldn't do. You read. <laughs> George was crushing his new role, but at the end of the day, even in the 1940s, fans had seen eye gouging, they'd seen the cheap heat, and George wanted to be like this next level main event bad guy. And by the end of 1943, George would take his first step towards becoming gorgeous. As we mentioned, the U.S. is knee-deep into World War II around this point. The U.S. had shifted their focus to the war and building a nuclear bomb before the Nazis could do the same. So America was turned into essentially a giant factory with the war taking up all the resources. Or a Christopher Nolan film. That's actually what the war (laughs) was being turned into, if you don't know. So the average American was given ration stamps or tokens. Needless to say, most people were not well off. So... Betty and George thought the shittiest, hillish thing they could do is have George flaunt his wealth. Not that he was actually like a one percenter or anything. It's fake. Wrestling's fake. In a time where all materials, including fabrics, were very limited, 
Betty and her mother, who were both badass seamstresses, they made George's first robe out of blue satin, decorating it with silver sequins. George was about to look like an asshole. George did his first trial run at the Labor Temple on a Monday in 44, and when the blue-collar workers saw George in his luxurious robe, they lost their fucking shit. Especially as George delicately folded his <laughs> robe, and they refolded it because it wasn't quite folded perfectly enough. As the booze rained in, George literally stuck his nose up at the crowd. <laughs> For the listeners, what we'll need you to do is to understand fully what is going on. Imagine the end of Bruno, <laughs> if you've ever seen that movie before, <laughs> with the cage fight and he, and he like, <laughs> like this. Did you guys see the movie Bruno? Do you know the what I'm talking about? The only thing I know about Bruno is that he stuck his dick in somebody's face at the VMAs that one year. Never watched the movie, okay. but I'm assuming this is going to be good. I remember uh, the UFC spot. <laughs> yes, he had a UFC spot, and then I think he ended up making out with his boyfriend in the middle of the ring, and it was like one of the most rednecky things. And like people were legitimately mad, and when they filmed it, they had a trap door for him to escape. So he didn't have to go through the cage. He had a trap door to slide through the bottom of the cage to get out of there as quickly as possible. So yeah, it was basically that. And like the looks on people's face, like, like, yeah, punch him, kill him. And then all of a sudden he just like starts making out with them. And they're like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> like I, I can imagine similar reactions to Gorgeous George in the 40s. So he's flaunting his wealth, but I think... There's definitely heat on him because he's doing things that are considered effeminate. Yeah, he, he's definitely ramping up to that yeah. for sure. Yeah, like he, he, he knows what he's doing. From there, it was more robes. He kept the folding bit for a good while. And while the robes were all handmade from old clothes and sheets found around the house by Betty, George let the crowds know that they were priceless and each insured for $5,000. My robes cost more than your house. Yeah. <laughs> so the next change for George was his hair. Betty got him to grow it out a little bit and she started curling it, which was actually a very shocking thing to do in the Leave it to Beaver clean cut times. He looked like a fucking communist. Then they started playing with the color. The first draft was to use dyes to make George's hair match his robes, but once he started wrestling and sweating, the dye would start dripping <laughs> all into his eyes and all over his opponents. So uh, that was a swing and a miss. Then at a show, when Betty and her mom were watching George spin around in his robe in all its glory, uh, either Betty or her mom says that it kind of goes back and forth. I've heard it both ways, but they go, he's gorgeous. Light bulbs go off, and after dyeing George's brown hair blonde, the gorgeous George was born in 1946. George started getting his hair marcelled at women's beauty parlors, where he would also start giving like some interviews. And while George was straight, a little too straight if you ask his wives, you could argue that he introduced the masses to gender-bending, softer side of a man, possibly even a gay entertainer. George actually accused Liberace of stealing his act. <laughs> <laughs> so... It's so odd because he is like giving birth to modern day professional wrestling, modern day American pop culture, but he is a heel playing a character to the best of his ability and he's more or less preying on the fear of gay men in America, especially at that time. Culturally, yeah. this is not talked about. You know, if you yeah. have a gay person in your family, it's very hush-hush, confirmed bachelor. 
It's what they would be called. <laughs> um, so it's like it's it's such a two two edged sword because it's he's such an important piece of professional wrestling, but the way that he did this character is it exploitative of gay people? So the character actually like wasn't gay it was just very uh flamboyant he was it was more like a uh a king from the 1700s more than like uh, a, a gay person mm-hmm. a fancy man a, a foofooey yeah. <laughs> a foofooey person a dignitary a royal a noble somebody above the common man mm-hmm. if you will is is more of what i always got the vibe off of him but he definitely he definitely knew he was kind of hitting some hot buttons. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. One of the few few people that have was able to kind of describe what Gorgeous George was able to do. Because also, you got to keep in mind, and this is very hard to describe even in, in this era where every bit of wrestling is streamed, put on YouTube. You can go on Twitter. We got a million fucking hours of television produced. And on top of that, streaming platforms on top of that. And everybody, there's just wrestling everywhere. Well, this is a little bit before TV is a thing. Like, TV's not even that popular at this time. And wrestling is not like on TV all the time. It is, you know, in in big matches and in, in certain cities. But in Buffalo, New York, which was the example that Mark Lewin would talk about. You'd get somebody like a Gorgeous George, like the Buffalo Territory would book, you know, Gorgeous George. And the first thing he'd always do is go to all the beauty salons and get his hair done. Because there's no barber that could do my hair to my specifications. I have to go to a, a properly trained professional at a beauty salon to take care of my golden locks. So he would go to these beauty salons and go on and on about how how wonderful his hair is and all the fancy things and just getting back from Paris. And don't you like this ring? This (laughs) ring is so gorgeous. It's far better than the ring that you're wearing, sweetheart. Uh, (laughs) Is there anybody here that can do a proper manicure, a proper French manicure? Is there anybody that can do that? And just proceed to be an asshole, down talk everybody in the beauty salon. And then, you know, this this poor woman would, would go home after being berated by Gordis George, who would not tip, which <laughs> definitely not not acceptable to do at any moment in time to not tip his beautician. Living the gimmick, so this brother. woman would. Well, here's here's why: because this woman would go home and she would be like, "Ugh, today was horrible." This man walked in, and already the, the husband's like, "Man walked in. What's this about?" And he goes, "He wanted me to get his hair done, and he was just so pompous and arrogant." He just wouldn't shut up. He was just annoying me. He was rude to everybody. Didn't tip. And the guy said he was a wrestler and he was wrestling in town and he needed his hair to look good for this wrestling show that he had going on on Friday night. And then the husband would go, well, it's funny you mentioned that wrestling that's happening Friday night. This man, Mark Lewin, walked into my hardware store and he actually helped me unload one of the trucks full of nails. Like this man was he was a big, strong man, and he was carrying two boxes at a time of nails. And he was bringing them in the store. He helped me restock the store for a little bit and actually told me to keep the change off of a hammer he bought. Uh, he's actually a wrestler, and he's wrestling Friday night, too. That's that's weird. Well, maybe it's something in the paper about it. Wait a minute. Mark Lewin is wrestling Gorgeous George. The guy that you don't like, is that the wrestler that came into the beauty parlor? Oh my gosh, they're re- oh, we've got to go see this this match. 
Because we got to see this guy get his butt kicked because this Mark Lewin guy, he's such a nice individual and he's wrestling the guy that was rude to you. Let's go down to the Buffalo Auditorium to go check this match out. This is during the Barnstormer days. These aren't accidents. This is what they would do for them to get to draw a big house. They would come in the Monday before and then just go around town being their characters. Heels would be bad people, would start bar fights and, you know, just be ornery, obnoxious and say, ah, you locals are so stupid. I can't wait to get out of this town. I got a big wrestling match Friday night, you know? And then, then all of a sudden they have the babyface wrestlers going around helping people, you know, getting kittens out of trees, walking kids across the street, helping out old ladies with their groceries. And that's how they did it. That's how they were able to draw a house was these barnstorming days of being almost like role-playing their characters in the community to get people to buy tickets because that's what wrestling is at the end of the day and people want to forget that as much as possible. What wrestling is and when it works the best is when you take somebody that nobody likes and have them fight somebody who everybody likes and that's what professional wrestling is and that's when it is successful that's when it's beautiful that's when it is always magical you can do all the flips and the crazy things as possible but if you don't like the guy that did the cool flip but you like the other guy that did the cool flip well then guess fucking what you're gonna cheer for that guy and that's what it is cheering for the guy you like and booing the guy you don't like and that's how these guys back in georgia's era would do it it'd be real life and that's what felt so real and that's why people didn't question the legitimacy of these fights because, oh no, he's an asshole and deserves to get his butt kicked. You know, like that's who this guy is because that's who he was in reality and now he's in this in the ring. And the, that ability to do it. It's, it's those barnstorming days. You couldn't just be like, I'm on TV, I play a character and then I go home and be somebody else. You had to be that person in that town and then move on to the next town and do it over and over and over again. And that's how it's changed from then to now because now it's about uh, selling action figures depending on who you ask. But that is an amazing story, Jake. I love it because that's one of the things I love about pro wrestling, the things you see in the ring and all that, but like the psychology of these people manipulating other human beings. It's on a micro level, it's terrifying, sad. Sometimes it's illegal. Like there's a lot of fucked up shit on a micro level. On a macro level, it is fascinating that you guys' entire job as wrestlers is to manipulate people's emotions and that's fun to watch by mid 46 george would add the next element to his gimmick so betty had been managing him a good bit but he wanted to up the presentation and that's when he added jeffries jeffries was a bit of a manservant butler kind of guy think like jeffrey from the fresh prince there would be several jeffries uh jake brown was the longest serving jeffries from uh, 47 to 52 one night for a special event bob hope plate jeffries again this drew massive heat as he walked to the ring to pompid circumstance giving out his golden bobby pins that he called georgie pins and spraying the room with chanel number five which he called chanel number 10 because he's twice as good as you are and i i question the validity of it but allegedly George South has one of those Georgie pins. Now, this is, I, I've known this man for a very long time. He's the carniest of carnies, but allegedly he has a Georgie pin. I looked I, on eBay for some. I couldn't find any on the whole internet. Alle- allegedly he, ha- he has one. Allegedly. I imagine I this whole thing, this, this podcast blows up. And George South shows up to his next indie show and he's got thousands of gold Bobby pins. <laughs> <laughs> So with George's success, he bought a house in L.A., Los Angeles, not the other one, 
And he was on the road five to six days a week. They had more than enough money for the first time in their lives, uh, George and Betty. And George would actually buy a seven-passenger purple Cadillac limousine to tour in. <laughs> uh, purple was his color. That orchid, it's all purple. Everything's purple. But then in November of 47 came quite possibly the most important duo in wrestling history, Gorgeous George and Television. And one of my favorite George quotes is, I don't know if I was made for television or television was made for me. The television was invented in 1927, but then you had the Depression, then you had World War II. So before 47, only like a few thousand people had them in their houses. But when the war was over, there was an upswing in TV sales, and 12 million people would have them in less than 10 years. Gorgeous George and TV would reap the benefits from one another, and it was said that George sold just as many TV sets as comedian Milton Berle. Pro wrestling and TV were best friends because wrestling shows were cheap to make. It wasn't the big production it is today. All they had to do was rig a couple extra lights, point a camera at the ring, hire an actor or ex-wrestler to announce, done. Hours of content and the Dumont, NBC, and ABC networks played that shit all the time. George was an American celebrity. He wasn't like a famous wrestler like a Batista or Cena or even The Rock. Gorgeous George was an A-list icon. His blonde hair and robes not only made him look different in person, but he was more memorable on TV than the plain boots, plain trunks guys. He like popped off the TV. Then the first TV promos started getting cut and George was a natural. He was as famous as Bob Hope, Ed Sullivan, Lucille Ball. Songs were written about him. He was making 100k a year, the same as Yankees great Joe DiMaggio. He was so popular that bars that advertised that they had a TV started advertising that they had Gorgeous George on TV. With George as the top guy, pro wrestling as a whole was outdrawing Major League Baseball. It was the sport. Hogan and Austin ain't got shit on what Gorgeous George was. I believe this is what they call the golden era of professional wrestling. This era where it is highly mainstream and this is the era that got referenced once it became as popular as it was in the 80s when hulk hogan was on top and on nbc like wrestling hasn't been on national broadcast television since gorgeous george that's how much of a trendsetter he was it was like this is the benchmark of the greatness of professional wrestling and hulk hogan's greatness was measured against what gorgeous george had had done and created it's interesting you talked about TV the way that you did, Nick, because uh, when my grandpa was growing up, my grandpa is where I got my love of professional wrestling from. He told me stories about him as a kid going over to his uncle's house and seeing a television for the first time. And the first thing he saw was somebody singing a song, How Much Is That Little Dog in the Window? But like one of the few, few times later he went, he saw wrestling for the first time. He saw Gorgeous George on television. And that's what sparked like a lifelong love of professional wrestling was what gorgeous george did on the shitty i'm sure small black and white fuzzy television <laughs> in the 40s and 50s and 49 george would break out of wrestling and into the movie biz familiar he would star in alias the wrestler which is kind of a movie about george who like plays himself uh, i watched it i <laughs> it's not like good but it, it's fun these bat guys show up to fix wrestling <laughs> matches because it's real guys it's real and then they try to frame george for murder the whole thing is on youtube it's uh i, I liked it 
Another crazy thing from this time is that George was beating faces. So this like wasn't unheard of, but it was usually by cheating. They always got their comeuppance. This generation was raised by the Lone Ranger. We also just beat the bad guys in World War II. Also, in Hollywood, there was this thing called the Hayes Code, which meant shows and movies had to have no swearing, no bad values, no sex, and the good guys always had to beat the bad guys. But George could roll in, legit win, leave on top. That was new. George was also changing the game financially. In a time where major headliners took 4 maybe 5% of the door, promoters were begging George to come to town to give him 20% of the door. So on a more positive side, George inspired a generation of wrestlers around the country to be more creative with their gimmicks. It didn't have to be serious guy A and serious guy B pretending they're not friends in the back. There is a direct line from George to superstar Billy Graham to Macho Man to the Man Scout. But on a more negative side, George's success also spawned a series of cheap, gorgeous George copycats. They weren't like riffing off the gimmick. They were like Elvis impersonating. Oh, they were going by the same name. This wasn't like a lovely Larry. Yeah. He had to start calling himself the original Gorgeous George, and they fucking stole that too. (laughs) They started calling themselves the original Gorgeous George. In 56, George even wrestled another Gorgeous George. It's like Taker versus Taker. And around this time, there's actually a match on YouTube, uh, Gorgeous George versus Hans Schnabel, I believe. And this was a 60-minute time limit, two out of three falls match. The Chicago International Amphitheater, I don't know what the promotion was, but Nick, you and I both both watched this. This is, it's about a 15-20 minute match, and it's through the Chicago Film Archives. But it was really interesting to watch, the fact that these guys were in the ring, 15-20 minutes. The style is so much different than it is even yeah. from the 70s and 80s. The roll-through headlock thing, I think it was often his finisher, blew my mind. It looked so cool. It also looked dangerous as shit. Are you talking about the flying mare? I think that's what they called it. Yeah, maybe, maybe so. I think so. that turns maybe into like the snap mare later on. That's my best guess. Uh, it's like, is that the thing okay. you're talking about where he like goes up in the air and like takes him over? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very interesting to watch. It's also interesting how much respect they gave the referee and how like they elevated him to a position of power. And you don't see that much anymore because the ref was like, but it's real. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember what the ref's name was, but at one point, the commentator who's doing it solo, he's like, well, that's so-and-so, and he's a cab driver when he's not here reffing these matches. <laughs> and so he knows a thing or two about handling somebody. And like the good guy throws the ref out of the way at one point. That gets him disqualified. Spoilers, sorry. But it's like the ref doesn't back down on anything in this. He's given up a couple of inches to both of them, but he's a stocky little fella. It's very interesting to see that difference in like now the referees, they're so fragile. If you breathe on them, they're down. And this guy, he's bald. He's a bald old man that's fucking tired of life and drives a taxi. And he's here refing this match and he doesn't want these fucking wrestlers giving him the business. I think it was Sonny Fargo in, like, the Crockett territory. Like, he would count with his foot because he didn't want to go all the way down on his knees <laughs> to count the pin. He would count it with his foot. Like, he'd stand there and go, one, two, and stomp the mat as opposed to get all the way down and check the shoulders. The way old refs would just, like, dr- slowly drop to their knees and hit the mat. Uh, I don't know when that changed or what ref changed that, but thank you. <laughs> yeah. I I hated it. I It drives me nuts. Dude, he would take his time when there was a pen. He's like, what? It's over there? Fuck, all right. I guess I'll go over to that side. Check the, the shoulders. Make sure they're down. 
With all of George's success came the lifestyle. He was rubbing elbows with fellow celebrities. He was noticed everywhere he went, and he started getting a drink from anyone within range of a bar. George's alcoholism would be a slow burn, but the fuse was lit. By the 50s, George's drinking was catching up with him, and he also added high-stakes gambling to the mix. And George was not a very good or a very lucky gambler. So he was um, no Phil Mickelson, is what you're saying. No. <laughs> betting a billion dollars and then b- betting on the Ryder Cup. Jesus. <laughs> Allegedly, I'm sorry. Allegedly. At the time, George wasn't like a sloppy or abusive drunk, but he was a full-blown functional alcoholic. And already mostly absent George, because he was a wrestler, became almost totally absent from home once the drinking took over. That was enough to end things with Betty. After 13, almost 14 years of marriage, they divorced in September of 52. George and Betty had settled down on this turkey farm in California, and George gave that to her and their two adopted kids in the divorce. All this made George's drinking much worse. Uh, He started showing up the shows drunk, he'd be late, he'd miss dates completely. But around 57, George met Sherry, who would become his second wife and second divorce. She valeted for George, just like Betty did, and I believe they had a couple kids. She got the worst of George. We'll get into that later. By the mid-50s, Gorgeous was starting to cool down a good bit in popularity as TV started having more programming, and a younger generation of spot monkeys like Killer Kowalski, Vern Gagne, and Yukon Eric were taken over. In an effort to get a little bit of heat back under him, George had arguably his most publicized match of his career. March 12, 59, George put his golden locks up against Whipper Billy Watson, and he lost. So in front of millions on TV, 20,000 fans in Toronto's Maple Leaf Gardens, they shaved off his hair. And just that famous photo that got circulated of him like looking at his bald head, and I think there was like a, a Jeff, uh, I don't know if it was the original Jeffries or one of the Jeffries like holding up a mirror and him just being so upset. At his bald head, and I think he even like wrestled with a wig for a short period of time. Like, just did everything you were supposed to. And I don't know where we were with like head shaving. Like, if that was like even big in Mexico at the time, or if this was, I don't want to say he was one of the first, but I can't imagine like too many other people doing like head shaving matches of the time. Like, he might have been one of the first or the originators because, like, if you shave. All these flat top motherfuckers, like it doesn't really make a difference. But that's a good point. He probably was the first. Like it had to be a guy that had took so much pride in his hair. Yeah. And like like all the wrestlers we saw were black boots, trunks, and just slightly coiffed or flat top looking dudes, or were bald already. You know, like it might have been one of the first. Jake just did some research for you. The first Lucha de Apuestas was presented on July fourteenth, nineteen forty. So just a a decade or two decades before this is when it started. So that's very close. Okay. Definitely, definitely stole it from, from Mexican wrestling. That, that seems a bit more of how the story should go Mm. is we stole something from a different country. (laughs) Got it. Thank you for clarifying. Mm -hmm. Let's leave that on the pod. Please. (laughs) Then we get to the 1960s and the sixties were absolutely not a groovy far out happening time for George. First, he had dipped in the national spotlight. Shows like Andy Griffith, Dragnet, Superman, Bonanza, they were stealing away casuals from wrestling. Elvis was the man in entertainment. Sports-wise, you had Bill Russell, the Yankees, Muhammad Ali was starting to get going. There was a show in 1960 for George, who drew thousands just on a Tuesday. They had to cancel it because no one came. 
Uh, so George retired October 61 after 27 years in the business, but it wouldn't be long until he came back. Familiar? During his time away from the business, he opened up a bar in Van Nuys called Gorgeous George Ringside. Uh, the location's only like 15 minutes from me. I'm like 30% sure it's like an antique store now, but I keep meaning to drive over there. I haven't done it. George getting into a new business after wrestling, yay, but an alcoholic owning a bar, not good. Unless it's Sam Malone. Unless it's Sam Malone. That's the only, only way it's ever worked out. And so begins the downfall of Gorgeous George. The first downfall of a major wrestling name and a string of seemingly endless names that would fall victim to pro wrestling. With over a decade of heavy drinking, George's liver started to fail him. He was hospitalized around January 62. Uh, he was released and was meant to be on a strict diet and most importantly, no more booze. But he kept up with that for like maybe a month. Then, June 62, he divorced his second wife, Sherry. She was able to put up with the cheating, the drinking, but once George got physical with her in a drunken rage, it was over. The papers picked up the news of the divorce, the wife beating, and even in those days, not great for bar business. His bar was hemorrhaging money, and George was going broke. He also had got hosed by a few bad investments, and remember, he's losing piles of money on gambling. With things looking really bad for George, he went back to the one thing he knew, wrestling. He called up Dick the Destroyer Buyer and asked for a match. So at this time, it's just crazy to say, Dick was an up-and-coming star. Who, <laughs> Jesus, uh, this, this podcast is so fucking weird. Because all I get pictures just old-ass fucking Destroyer with Eagle Scouts chopping wood. Like... <laughs> As a star ahead of him, he had a lot of respect for George, so they arranged a match together. They landed on a hair versus mask match for maximum clickbait. George put up no fight. He knew his hair was coming off against the younger, fitter, more relevant Dick the Destroyer, but George desperately needed a payoff. November 7th, 62, George would wrestle one last match at the Olympic, a place that arguably made him not able to pay a valet. George walked to the ring all by himself, spraying his own Chanel like a common slut. In white boots and a shiny red robe decorated by rhinestones, he did the job, losing the second and final fall to the figure four. While he sat there and got his hair cut, the crowd actually like turned sympathetic. They saw a beaten old George stoically losing the last piece of identity he had as gorgeous, and it just broke everyone's heart in the room. Since the match drew well enough, uh, Destroyer and George did meet one more time in Long Beach, December 11th of 62. That was the end of his career. With his bar failing, his debt adding up, George ended up moving to a place on Skid Row. And that's how George would spend the last year of his life. On Christmas Day, 1963, George arrived at the hospital after suffering chest pains and died the next day at the age of 48. For all the glory that was Gorgeous George, for a man that changed pro wrestling and reached a level of fame and fortune that wouldn't get close to replicate it until Hogan in the 80s, he died penniless, heartbroken, and nearly homeless. Gorgeous George was pro wrestling's first great tragedy. So despite his sad unraveling, George had changed the world, and while he may just be some kind of old name like Ty Cobb in baseball, his effects on pro wrestling touched every inch of the business and every promotion around the world. So despite never really doing anything for the territory, he was inducted into the 2010 Hall of Fame by WWE, inducted by Dick the Destroyer, with a guest appearance from the woman who started it all, Betty. So final thoughts on Gorgeous George. Gorgeous George was the first professional wrestler to me a little bit. 
because the way that I see professional wrestling now, it's not just the guys that had matches with predetermined outcomes. It was the people that really took a character and breathed life into it in a way that captured people around the world. And I think Gorgeous George, his forays into Hollywood, it's undeniable the effect that he had on American pop culture. And, uh, yeah, wrestling's first great tragedy. I don't think I could say it any better, Nick. So I don't care if you sit in a dark room and watch Kawada Masawa over and over, if you like women's wrestling, men's wrestling, man scouts versus tents, AEW, WWE, or that local indie that runs four times a year. There's no corner of wrestling that you can hide from the influence of Gorgeous George. On top of his wrestling influence, George also shaped pop culture. He is a man who directly influenced Bob Dylan, James Brown, filmmaker John Waters. We mentioned Muhammad Ali. His effect on pro wrestling is everything. But I think what I want the main takeaway from this episode to be is that innovation is the key to survival and growth. All progress is made by dragging some dumb old fuck kicking and screaming into the future. And to do that, each generation needs someone like Gorgeous George. Gorgeous George created the template, the template of, of being a professional wrestling star, character, pro wrestler in general. You know, both of you gentlemen, like, hit the nail right on the top of the head of his influence in the business. But I think we also should give a big tip of the cap to Betty without her being by George's side, suggesting things and being a part of the package. You you wouldn't have got that either. So we want to give a lot of credit to George. I think I think Betty's an important part of the gorgeous George story. This should be a movie somewhere. Like the, the story of this man, like not sure of himself, but then the woman he loves be getting behind him and supporting him, and then together they come up with this idea that changed a uniquely American art form forever. It's it's undeniable what those two were able to do and affect and change this thing that is known as professional wrestling that has stood the test of time over the years with things that were created by George and Betty, probably at a car ride, a bedroom, a living room, uh, over a dinner table. Something that they thought of and tried is something that is the template for success in professional wrestling. All right, that is Gorgeous George's 10 Bell Pod. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for donating to the Patreon if you are checking us out on social media. Jake, Tyler, you have anything? Please leave a review. It is very, very, very important. And make sure you follow us on social media. Yes, subscribe to whatever you can. Subscribe to the Patreon if you guys have any ideas for other things you'd like to see us do. There may be uh, some type of pro wrestling D&D thing going on. I don't know. Nick and I are throwing the idea yeah. around. Could be more drunk pro wrestling history. Whatever you guys want to see, throw us some ideas and um, tell Nick how good of a job he's doing. Cake in the lobby?